Back in April, Marine Le Pen failed for the second successive French presidential election to defeat arch-centrist Emmanuel Macron. This prompted an amount of hopeful chatter that the populist nationalist fever which had beset European politics this century might have broken, that a return to the continent's liberal consensus was at hand. Last weekend's election in Italy, however, forces us to consider the unhappy prospect that, and we're going to switch metaphors here, live with it, while the populist nationalist tide may have gone out, it is now coming back in. The EU's third biggest country by both population and economy will be led for the next while by Georgia Maloney, who has a personal history of undisguised blood-and-soil rhetoric regarding immigration and unsubtle nudging and winking about globalists. Maloney's party, the Brothers of Italy, have a history and indeed a logo directly traceable to Italian fascists. The Brothers of Italy are not alone. In September, Swedish voters disrupted the centre-left harmony of the Nordics by electing a Conservative coalition almost certain to include the Sweden Democrats. Their current cutesy emblem, a cheerful cartoon of a forget-me-not flower, seems an overcompensation for the party's roots in the murkier swamps of the far right. Italy and Sweden are very different countries, but are there lessons to be drawn from both about why voters remain attracted to populists? And does demonising far-right parties, if an understandable temptation, actually do them a favour? This is The Foreign Desk. I don't think it's very useful to try to explain this phenomenon and this growth just after the question, will fascism returns in, in Italy? I understand that this topic attracts a lot of attention, but I don't think this is the right way to understand what's happening in Italy. We are going to have a very conservative government, but I don't think Italy will become Hungary or it will be a police state. The Sweden Democrats were left with a completely open goal. Any voters who had any sort of reservations about the very high historical levels of immigration that Sweden was experiencing at the time. Anyone who had doubts about that had only one option, and it was the party's insistence on refusing to engage with such voters during this period that really led to the Sweden Democrats being established. Not all people supporting Maloney need be actual fascists, but all would have been aware of the party's historical roots. The fact that's not enough to dissuade them is depressing. It's also created a weird thought distortion. It's allowed people to believe that being anti-fascist is a left-wing thing to do. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Well, joining me first of all from Milan is Ed Stocker, Monocle's Europe editor-at-large. Ed, first of all, what do we know for sure about what form Italy's new government is going to take? Well, all we know is that it's going to be made up of the three coalition players, which of course is Lega, Forza Italia. Those are the two minority players, if you like. And of course, brothers of Italy, Fratelli d'Italia. Fratelli d'Italia is... The major party it got 26% of the vote. It is the major, the dominant party in Italian politics now. So one may expect them to have more ministers compared to the junior partners. But there's a lot we still don't know, Andrew, because there's this weird sort of limbo period. Nothing happens until Parliament gets together on the 13th of October. Then you have the Senate and the lower chamber. They have to elect their president. So then we start to see formations. And then, of course, Maloney formally 
needs to get the backing of Parliament, which seems to be a done deal this time around, which it hasn't been, one might add in the past in Italian politics, but because she has a majority in both houses, it should make it pretty easy. And from there, we'll start to see the ministers being put in place once she's got the backing and gone to the president, Matarella, to formally be accepted, if you like, as prime minister. How is the Italian media filling that interregnum? Because obviously they have the considerable novelty of Italy's first female prime minister and the considerable novelty of the brothers of Italy leading a government. But there's also some extremely familiar figures hovering around this, notably the likes of Matteo Salvini and Silvio Berlusconi. There's been a couple of things. One I'd say was an attempt to predict what this government is going to be like and what it's going to do, because we've seen different types of Giorgia Maloney, and it will be interesting to see which one shows up for work where she's become prime minister. For example, there's a speech she made in Andalusia in Spain in support of Vox that's been doing the rounds in which she is very much in firebrand mode talking about the LGBT lobby, etc. And so there's that side of her. And then there's the other side that we saw in the lead up to the election, which tried to strike a much more conciliatory tone that was trying to, you know, smooth markets, appeal to European leaders. And so the question mark is, how is she going to be? And the other question really is, and it's kind of interesting, in many ways, the biggest opposition she faces could be internal, because although the centre-right, as it's called, and let's face it, it's dominated by the far-right now, but it's still referred to with that euphemism, it is made up of three very different parties in this coalition. It is a marriage of convenience of sort. One, the left weren't able to form. You have Berlusconi, his Forza Italia, which is the more centrist of the bunch. So then you have Matteo Salvini, from Lega, who used to be the dominant far-right party. And this election's been very bad for him. He's dropped massively to around 8 or 9%. And there have been some people calling for his head, saying that he needs to step down as head of that party. So expect him to sort of be jockeying for position. He wants to be interior minister like he was before. It seems unlikely that Maloney will give him that position. He also has talked in sort of very populist terms about wanting 30 billion to help Italians pay for their energy bills. It seems Maloney wants to strike a more sensible line, actually, in that regard, economically. So is Salvini going to be a bit of a thorn in her side if he doesn't get what he wants? That will be something interesting to watch as well. Do we have any indications from her of firm actual policy priorities once she's in office? In terms of the economy, it looks like she's not going to do a huge amount to change the course that Draghi has set. In terms of those things, a draft of the budget has to be sent by mid-October. That's before she'll even have all her ministers in place. It's only a couple of days after Parliament goes back. So she is working, actually, and they form this sort of strange packed for now to sort of work on these things together. Her and the incumbent Mario Draghi are working on information to send to Brussels, which will basically be all those things like deficit, debt, predictions. That all has to be sent by mid-October. But obviously, Italy is a huge receiver of recovery fund money from the European Union, and it has to meet a range of targets in order to receive the different slices, if you like, of that cake. 
And so it would be unlikely that Maloney would do anything to upset that. So it seems certainly in many regards, in terms of economics, she's not going to change the course too much. She's already said that she wants to continue supporting Ukraine, whether or not that's sincere or not, or just her politicking, we don't know. And there's also the European Union. She said that she's firmly committed to being inside that European Union, even though she's been a big skeptic in the past. So I think those things may be actually more conventional than we think. I think there's an element of her having to pick her battles. The big question mark, though, Andrew, is economics aside, what about social issues? What about those culture wars we talked about? That's the big question. And those are the things where we may see her being much more far right in terms of civil rights, abortion, immigration, integration of foreign-born Italians, et cetera, et cetera, that so-called LGBT lobby that I mentioned before. Those are the big question marks that we don't know about. And those are the things that she might go for in a bid to sort of appease the people who voted for her. Ed, thank you. That was Monocle's Europe editor-at-large, Ed Stocker. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24, and I'm joined now by Nicholas Aylott, Associate Professor at Sertorn University in Stockholm, and joining us from Milan is Francesco Costa, an Italian journalist and the deputy editor of Il Post. Francesco, first of all, let's define some terms. When people talk about the Brothers of Italy being far right, what do they actually mean by that? Fratelli d'Italia, Brothers of Italy, it's a party that is relatively young, but which has its historical origins in the wrecks that remain of the fascist party after World War II. But we're talking about something that happened 70 years ago, and that political area in Italy has made a great journey since then. And they have already governed Italy because they were crucial allies of Silvio Berlusconi. Giorgia Meloni has already been a minister in our government. And of course, a small part of the most active members of this party, especially the older part, is certainly under the cultural fascination of fascism, of the culture. But this is a party that until a few years ago was at 3% in the elections. If today is at 25, it's not because a quarter of Italians suddenly decided to vote for a fascist party. This party is a right-wing party. And while there is a growing polarization and radicalization in politics of many European countries, I don't think it's very useful to try to explain this phenomenon and this growth just after the question, will fascism returns in, in Italy? I understand that this topic attracts a lot of attention, but I don't think this is the right way to understand what's happening in Italy. We are going to have a very conservative government, but I don't think Italy will become Hungary or it will be a police state. Nicholas, I'll put a similar question to you about the Sweden Democrats, whose history as well, if you look far enough into it, takes you to some pretty unsavoury places. Is it helpful or indeed even accurate to characterise them as any further right than far right? I think I can give you a rather similar answer to the one that Francesco gave you. Sweden's party system is full of really old, well-established parties. They nearly all date back well before the the Second World War. And the Sweden Democrats are the exception. They were formed relatively recently in the late 1980s. But that still makes them, you know, a fairly mature party now. They've been going for around 35, 40 years, of course. And they, too, have changed a lot during that time. Their origin was unquestionably racist, unquestionably extremists. There's no question about that. But since the current leadership took over, 
in 2005. The party has followed a very uh, clear and disciplined strategy, I would say, which is to move into the middle ground and to achieve policy influence through collaboration with other parties, which is the only way to achieve influence really in the in the Swedish system. And now if you look at the party today, well, the question is, how do we judge what a party really wants? If you look at its program and its manifesto, then it comes across as a sort of conservative, slightly nationalist party that wouldn't really be out of place in the mainstream of many European countries. And by that measure, maybe the Sweden Democrats aren't so threatening or extremist as some might suggest. And as regards economic policy, then the party is probably centre-left rather than anywhere near the flanks of the spectrum. Francesco, it's a question that it occurs to me could apply to any conservative populist party in Europe or indeed anywhere, but is it arguable that that media fixation on their origins, the sort of more extremist tendencies of their more extreme members, has actually helped them? That because nobody will engage with them on actual policy and they are able to revel slightly in that kind of bad guy outsider image, they're kind of given a free pass by the anguish over their history? I don't know. I don't think so. In Italy, we have uh, and we had a number of uh, openly neo-fascist and neo-Nazi parties, but they never achieved percentages higher than than 1% or 2%. There's something different about this uh, sudden growth of Brothers of Italy. And I think it doesn't have to do with the fascism and all the history and cultural issues, but I think it has to do with the state of our politics and of our very poor policy offer to the Italian people. We had for a, a number of years, almost 10 years, a great coalition with almost all parties involved in government, even the parties that lost the election. And Fratelli d'Italia and Giorgia Meloni stayed out of these governments, were at times the only major Italian party to stay out of this kind of governments. So they are now cashing in on these years of opposition, and now they are seen as the most credible ones. And it's kind of a parable that we had in Italy with Matteo Salvini, with Matteo Renzi, these politicians with suddenly become the most popular and most voted ones. And then suddenly they lose everything or, or almost everything because people get disillusioned. I think there is a high probability we're going to see almost the same thing happens with Giorgio Meloni. Nicholas, this is a, that trajectory Francesco describes is quite a common one. The populist outsider who says that there's grand, sweeping, simple solutions to complex problems gets elected, tries to implement those solutions. It turns out they don't actually work and therefore the whole thing can implode quite quickly. Do you think that's a, a likely prospect for the Sweden Democrats as well? Yes, and I think they are pretty much aware of that too. It's a moment of dilemma for the party. There's no doubt about it. If it chooses not to take responsibility, then it could meet the same fate as the Danish People's Party in 2015, which very similarly was the biggest party on the right of the Danish spectrum after that election, but actively chose not to shoulder the burden of, of responsibility in office and paid an electoral price for that afterwards. The voters didn't seem to appreciate that sort of shirking. So the Sweden Democrats will be all too aware of that risk of not being seen to take responsibility when they have the chance. On the other hand, times are hard, times are probably going to get harder, and a party that does take responsibility for that in office or somewhere adjacent to office, as the Sweden Democrats are likely to be, 
are likely to pay a price too. Francesco, this is a pet theory of mine about the one thing that populist movements across well, certainly populist nationalist movements across Europe have had in common, which is that fundamentally quite a lot of people in Europe really don't like immigration and they don't like immigrants. Do you think that is that simple where the Brothers of Italy are concerned? Well, immigration has obviously played a big role, especially in the transformation of Giorgia Meloni from the leader of one of the many small Italian parties to a big national leader, because especially in the years before the pandemic, uh, immigration was certainly the most discussed issue by voters in Italy, and the very conservative, very uncompromising positions on immigrations were the one that had the greatest uh, success and popularity. This phenomenon launched first not just the career of Giorgia Meloni, but the career of Matteo Salvini, which, uh, as, who, as we know, he went to the government, he was our uh, interior minister for a couple of years, applying very tough policies on uh, immigration. Then he tried to take power and he has failed. And now today we see a significant part of the voters who the league lost, uh, they went to vote for Brothers of Italy. In recent years, immigration has not been the main topic of debate in Italian politics. There's been much more discussion about the pandemic and overall on the economic issues. So jobs, unemployment, taxes, uh, poverty and inequalities. The most interesting thing is that we're seeing even left-wing parties or center parties, moderate parties, with very conservative positions on immigration too. Nicholas, I want to come back to that point about immigration in the Swedish context as well. And I think this is a fairly Europe-wide phenomenon too. Whether the Sweden Democrats have benefited, as far-right anti-immigration parties often do, by the fact that liberal centre-left pro-immigration parties are often quite squeamish about the subject of engaging with it because they fear that if they acknowledge that there are any difficulties or drawbacks with immigration that they start sounding like the people they're opposing. That was certainly part of it in the Swedish case, no question about that. There was an extraordinary situation really in Swedish politics for several years from around the early 2000s up until around about 2015 when the Sweden Democrats were advancing into the political system. And this caused such a reaction among all the other parties, an attempt to try to ostracize the Sweden Democrats, that the Sweden Democrats were left with a completely open goal. Any voters who had any sort of reservations about the very high historical levels of immigration that Sweden was experiencing at the time, anyone who had doubts about that had only one option, and that was the Sweden Democrats. And it was the party's insistence on refusing to engage with such voters during this period that really led to the Sweden Democrats being established. That has changed now. Everything really changed after 2015 in Sweden with the culmination of this very big wave of migration into Europe and particularly into Sweden. And attitudes began to change, particularly on the centre-right, after that experience. And then in more recent years, the question of immigration has sort of conflated or been conflated with criminality. And Sweden has a very serious problem of conflict between criminal gangs at the moment. And this, I think, has made it a little easier for mainstream parties to sound much tougher about both these conflated questions. I think that has served also to bring the Sweden Democrats into the mainstream. So they are now more or less a normalised part of the centre-right or the right wing in Swedish politics. 
that brings us, I guess, to some concluding thoughts. And I'll start with you, Francesco, about what we might have learned, if anything, about how this kind of far-right nationalist populism can be confronted and can be defeated at elections. Because it often seems like you can't really win. The tactic of ostracism, which often gets tried tends to end up feeding the paranoid persecution complex of the nationalists. But when you engage with it, then you end up with something like Brexit. Have we actually learned anything about how these kind of parties can be defeated in a democratic environment? Well, it's certainly very hard because they seem to have like a structural advantage because of social media and communication on social media are driving our national conversation on a number of issues and how topics gets oversimplified, like immigration, like the economy. And of course, there are some party is more able to oversimplify stuff. And if you are a populist party, you oversimplify everything. And in a country that does not have a huge media consumption. It's very easy for Giorgia Meloni or Matteo Salvini or the far right, the populists in general, to tell a story to the Italian people about the problems we're facing and the solution we should adopt to solve these problems. So it's very hard unless you could maybe try to steal something from them, not in policy terms, but in communications without becoming just like them. And then there is also the topic of the external pressure on these governments and on on these parties. The European institutions, at least in Italy, enjoy such tiny credibility that is truly a gift for Giorgia Meloni every time she gets some criticism from a European commissioner or the European Commission. On the other hand, Europe has some very strong instruments that Meloni needs if you want to order to to run an order country because our economy is in a very fragile state. We need the funds from the next generation EU. We need help from Europe on energy prices. We need the protection of the European Central Bank regarding interest rates. And so maybe reality is actually the weapon that is most apt to defeat these parties because once they run the government and they have to face the issues that during the campaign seems so easy to solve, then they have to try to tell the Italian people a different story, not an oversimplified version of history. And Nicholas, finally, I guess to focus the same question on Sweden, is there a hope that that fundamentally and finally works, that the voters will see through the populists when they get into power? Or is the worry then that the populists can still flourish by just doubling down on everything, as we have seen them do in the United States, where they won an election, still couldn't govern, and are now touting the narrative that their re-election was stolen, and please keep those donations coming in? I suspect that there's no sure recipe to guard a polity against this sort of deterioration. In general, I think the incorporation of challenger parties over the long term into the political mainstream, as we've seen in Denmark and perhaps even more so in Norway and to an extent in Finland too, is maybe the least bad solution. I mean, it doesn't guard against a party completely going off the rails as we've seen in the United States. But I mean, I'm not sure there's any institutional barrier to that generally. We just all have to keep up fighting for democratic values and liberal values. And I'm not sure there's any shortcut past that. Nicholas Aylott and Francesco Costa, thank you both very much for joining us on The Foreign Desk. (laughs) 
Finally on today's show, a personal reflection on Italy's right turn by a member of Monocle 24's staff who obviously knows the country very well. Monocle's culture editor, Chiara Ramella. Plenty of people were unhappy that right-wing hard-nut Giorgia Meloni won the Italian elections earlier this week. A fair few of the nation's residents and a large portion of EU leaders among them. I wonder if Rino Gaetano's family wasn't exceedingly pleased either. That's him singing in the background. The late singer-songwriter is beloved in the whole country for his ironic, experimental music from the 70s. For years, his songs satirising social injustice were used by left-wing parties at their conventions. But in the last few months, Meloni took to playing them to soundtrack her public appearances, which led the Gaetano family to complain. It's not an issue of left or right, but of politicians appropriating his music, they said. Fair point, though I still think there's something strident about Meloni's land grab of the Liberals' traditional musical territory. It just doesn't sound right. Music is quite an important part of a political campaign, which is why when I found out about the election results on Monday morning, my first instinct was to find refuge in some long-lost comfort songs. Meganoidi, Porno Riviste, Scape, Modena City Ramblers. My playlist read a lot like the track list of the many mid-noughties demonstrations that I attended as a teenager. Something about the word fascist being used so frequently on newspaper headlines teleported me to a time when political engagement felt very black and white, passionate and uncompromising. Surely being angry at the fascists is something that belonged back with my 16-year-old self. Perhaps not. Much of the international coverage of Maloney's rise has focused on the fact that this is the most right-wing government to come to power in Italy since Mussolini's fall. Many in-depth analysis pieces have fought sensationalism by carefully explaining that since starting her campaign, Maloney has made her policies more palatable and EU-friendly. Some people have chosen to focus on the fact that a coalition made up of the same parties has existed and governed in the past, though not led by someone from its most radical fringe. Others have found solace in the idea that the right wing was able to poll so well largely because of low turnout, pointing to a failure of the left rather than an absolute success of the right. All of that is true. But it doesn't take away from the fact that Meloni's rise has given a comfortable, prime real estate home to all those fascists we used to scream against at our teenage demonstrations. Of course, not all people supporting Meloni need be actual fascists. Plenty of those who voted for Fratelli d'Italia may have done so out of a sense of frustration, disappointment, rage. But all would have been aware of the party's historical roots as an evolution of the movements born from the ashes of the original fascist party with a capital F. The fact that's not enough to dissuade them is depressing. It has been depressing for a long time. It's also created a weird thought distortion. It's allowed people to believe that being anti-fascist is a left-wing thing to do.
In a telling moment of the weeks preceding the election, pop star Laura Pausini was asked during an interview in Spain to sing Bella Ciao. The song has become very famous in the Iberian Peninsula as a soundtrack of the TV series La Casa de Papel, or Money Heist, but in Italy it is well known as the most famous chant of the anti-fascist resistance. She refused, saying the song was too political. Controversy poured in. Perhaps she's right. Songs become politicised by virtue of who sings them most often. That's why I refuse to give up on Reno Gaetano. Giorgia Meloni may have won the elections, but she's not going to win this fight. For Monocle, I'm Chiara Rimella. That was Monocle's culture editor, Chiara Ramella. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email Emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.